0: Father, I'm so grateful for this time to be together and to worship. There is something, Father, wonderful about worshiping together. And as a body gathered here, a fellowship of believers, to hear one another's voices lifted in song, to join as, as one just unified by Your Spirit in this place of worship. Father, I, I, I dare say I think it's the most unified place. It's the time we are more connected and more aligned in spirit than any other time when we come and worship You. It's a time when all our thoughts are in one place on one God and Father and Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Father, I thank You. It is a precious time. And I thank You that You prescribe worship and that we might ascribe worship to You. I pray, Father, for wholeheartedness among us all. And I look forward to the day, Lord, when wholeheartedness will just be a natural thing as we are surrounding Your throne and worshiping constantly. But until that day, Lord, as we continue to walk, would You fill up more and more of our hearts with You and Your presence, Your character and Your nature. May we be more aware of You each passing moment. We pray to this end, Father, for Your Word tonight that You will speak to our hearts and plant truth there. And may we continue to worship you in spirit and in truth tonight, as we open your word to hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Chronicles, verse one, chapter twenty four. Yoash was seven years old when he became king. Let that sink in. Seven. Unbelievable. And he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Zebiah from Beersheba. Yoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada took two wives for him, and he became the father of sons and daughters. Who was the most influential person for you in your life? If you pause and think about it for a moment, who is the one person out of all the people that you've come in contact with From birth to now, who is the one person you would consider the most influential spiritually? For Israel's youngest king on record, King Yoash, seated on the throne, again, at age seven, it was most certainly the priest named Jehoiada. And as a matter of fact, the first 14 or 15 verses of this chapter, first 16 verses to be specific, are really more about Jehoiada than they are about Yoash. Because Joash is under the guidance of the counsel of this very wise priest. He is the priest, you may recall, he and his wife, Jehoshaphat, who hid Joash as an infant from that evil queen, Atalia. The girls were laughing last week because I used a woman's voice when I spoke for Atalia. Treachery! Treason! Sometimes I do that. I went home and told Cheryl. It's funny. I love to tell stories. It's something that I do at home. I like to tell stories to our kids and uh, even on occasion my wife when she's having trouble sleeping. And uh, <laughs> Winnie the Pooh's her favorite. But when I'm telling stories, I get into character. And last week I completely forgot that we were in Bible study and I was telling the story. So, Anyway. But these two very wise people, the priest and his wife... They, they brought little Uash into the temple, you remember the story, and they protected him and they raised him. And so now at seven years old, he takes to the throne. But there's a certain foreboding in these verses as well. In verse 2 where we hear that he did right, what was, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Well, I don't know about you, but my mind immediately asks, well, what about after the days of Jehoiada the priest? What about the days that follow? Well, we'll get there. But right now, Yoash is under the influence of Jehoiada. And this godly influence of training began at a very early age. How early? We don't know for sure, although I ran across something that kind of rattled me a bit as I studied ahead this morning. Skip ahead and look in chapter 36. Chapter 36, the last chapter of Second Chronicles in verse 9. We come down to the second to the last king here in Judah. Things are in a bad, bad way. Spinning out of control. And we're told in verse 9 of chapter 36: Yehoiachin was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Eight years old. Eight years old. What is the age of accountability? (laughs) The Bible doesn't give a specific age when a child is truly accountable for their faith, for the knowledge of right and wrong, for the time. You know, that was asked a lot when I was growing up in the church that I was in. At what point are you now responsible and you can burn in hell if you happen to die? You know, we want to know where's the line, where's the fence, at what point do we have to take responsibility? When do you have to get a kid baptized? That was the real question that was asked in my church fellowship. The Bible doesn't give us an age of accountability, we can't say for sure, but we can say that eight-year-old Jehoiachin was obviously capable of evil. Eight years old. Now, if you consider evil stealing a cookie, I would understand that. But truly to be capable of evil at such a young age, well, Yoash, on the other hand, reigned well in his elementary years, comes onto the throne at the age of seven, and he reigned well because he was raised well. We talked about this last week. In fact, we've seen this a couple of times now that Yoash was hidden in the house of the Lord. Second 2 Chronicles 22.12 tells us that. Well, Psalm 92, and verse 12 says, The righteous man will flourish like a palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. And that's significant. Now, we don't have a temple that we all are called to go to. We have a barn. But the principle is the same. For a child to be raised well, I'm speaking partially to parents, but to all of us truly, we need, children need, a welcoming house to grow up in. They need a welcoming house. These little portables out here aren't much, but we need them to be a welcoming house. I'm going to take this opportunity to ask you all one more time if you're not helping out in children's ministry to help out because children need a welcoming house to be raised in. They need a welcoming house in their church. They need to know when they're coming across that gravel driveway that this is a good place to be. I like being there on Sunday morning. I didn't always feel that way when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. You know, I had the the sermons planned out at what point I could get up and actually look like I really did need to go to the bathroom, you know, so I could go waste some time walking through the halls before I came back. And then, you know, there was always things in my mind that I could do to get through that 45 minutes to an hour. Children need a welcoming house to grow up in. Yoash was hidden in the house of the Lord. He was handed the testimony of the Lord. We were told in Second 2 Chronicles 23.11. The testimony. That is the Word of God. He was given the Torah. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. So children not only need a welcoming house to grow up in, children need the word handed down to grow up on. Let me take this opportunity once again to encourage you to consider getting involved in our children's ministry <laughs> and helping out there. Because children not only need a welcoming house, they need the Word handed down. They need to be in the Word. They need to know all of the stories. There's a great value there. The Lord says, my Word doesn't come back to me empty. We need to be planting the Word in these kids. There was a time in America when the family Bible was a common wedding gift. Do you remember those days, some of you? That was something that was handed out. I remember our family Bible. Big old honking thing. I remember as a little kid having to use both hands just to get it open, but I loved it. There was something about it. Oh, not about the book, and I wasn't worshiping the book, but there was there were graphic pictures in there. And the stories, and, and even the, the gold gilt pages. Not gilt G-U-I-L-T, but G-I-L-T, you know. <laughs> And it had an impact. And I believe it had an impact on Yoash. Hidden in the house, handed the testimony, and he was helped along by spiritual parents. Not even his own parents. His father died before or right around his birth. His mother, all we know is her name was Zabiah. We don't know really anything about her, but we know he had godly parents. At least a godly parental influence. 2 Chronicles 24, 1-15 tell us this. Their names were Yehoiada, And Jehoshaphat. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train up a a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Children need a wise helper to grow up with, along with the word handed down in a welcoming house. Yoash's evil father, Ahaziah, again, was out of the way by the time he was born. Zabiah, we don't know, but Jehoiada and Jehoshaphat, these were two godly parents for this child. But something didn't stick with Yoash. For some reason. You could say he ran on Jehoiada's faith. We do that as children. We run on our parents' faith. And if you had faithful, God-fearing parents as you grew up, you, you ran on their faith. You believe because that's what they believe. It's like children in the elementary school arguing over the presidency, you know, arguing over political parties. They're not Democrats or Republicans in an elementary school. Their parents are. And whatever their parents are, that's what the kids tend to be. They run on their parents' beliefs. But there has to be a time in all of our lives that we own our own faith. I don't believe that because dad said so or mom said so. But because I believe, I know it to be true, my heart has taken hold. Yoash he ran on Jehoiada's faith. But apparently, never really developed his own. So, as long as Jehoiada was alive, Yoash did right in the sight of the Lord. Verse 4 tells us it came about after this that Yoash decided to restore the house of the Lord. Now, why would he do that? Well, he was raised there. (laughs) He had a love for the temple, he had seen it in disrepair. He gathered the priests and Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and collect money from all Israel to repair the house of your God annually, and you shall do the matter quickly. But the Levites did not act quickly. So the king summoned Jehoiada, the chief priest, and said to him... Now remember, there's the Levites, and then there's the priesthood, which is the line of Aaron of the tribe of Levi, but a separate group. And so he calls in now the big guns, the high priest. And he said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and from Jerusalem the levy fixed by Moses, the servant of the Lord, on the congregation of Israel for the tent of the testimony? And then it gives us in verse the reason, why, verse 7 the reason why the temple had to be repaired for the sons of the wicked Italia have broken into the house of God and even used the holy things of the house of the Lord for the bales. So the house was in disrepair and it was in bad shape. And Yoash wants to see it repaired, and so he calls on the levy. What levy? Exodus chapter 30, verse 12. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. It was a levy, and the reason it was given to the Lord was upkeep. The Lord told Moses in the wilderness, make sure everybody gives that half shekel annually. It wasn't much money, but if you have oh, three million Israelites, everybody giving half a shekel, that's quite a sum of money, and you can use that to maintain and to restore and to repair the tabernacle if you need to. Well, now here's the temple, and it's in bad shape. And the desire to repair the temple in Yoash's heart, we know it flowed out of his early childhood and Jehoiada's great influence, but why did the Levites move so slowly in collecting this levy? Why, even after Yoash says go do it, do they not? Go and do it. Well, Second Kings 12 tells the other part of the story. So I just referenced that. You can go back and check this. But it tells us they did collect the temple levy, the temple tax. They were collecting it every year. They were just keeping it. They had gotten used to it. It was now part of their salary. They pocketed it. Instead of feeding the sheep, the Levites were fleecing the sheep on the side. And the problem wasn't that they were taking pay. That's okay. The Lord, the Lord says, let the worker be worthy of his wages. Don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. He says, especially those of you who are teachers, you're, you're worthy of, of a double honor. He says that to the, to the shepherds who teach. But the problem was not that they were taking the pay. It, the problem was that this money was designated for temple repair to the Lord. This money was not to be their money. But again, they were used to living on it. They were accustomed to it. You know, when we get used to living on a certain sum of money and suddenly we are less that money, it's a little difficult to adjust, isn't it? And I tell you that because this week I was asked my opinion about tithing. Oh, here we go. I was asked my opinion about tithing versus charitable giving. And the difference, if there is any, between the two. Or, or can I use my tithe? I was asked to, to go to, like, Compassion International. Can I divvy up my tithe? Can I figure out 10% and go 2% here, 3% there, 4% there? And 1% there. Is, is that okay? Can I do that? Well, let me give you the answer. I mean, this is ultimately between you and the Lord. Okay, so what you're hearing from me, this is right now, is just Pastor Rick's opinion. I think it's the right one, but it's just my opinion. Directing your tithe defeats the purpose of tithing. If you say, I'm going to take my 10% and I'm going to choose for it to go here, 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 and here, you are defeating the whole purpose of tithing. What's the purpose of tithing, if not charity? Faith. Tithing is about faith. It is not about giving to certain organizations. It's not making sure that this group or that group gets what they need. Tithing, true tithing... That is taking the first fruits of your labor, that the first 10%, being completely biblical, the first 10% of what you get in your pay, in your salary, in your gross income, taking that first 10% and saying, it's God's faith. It's not mine. It's the Lord's. Belongs to Him. He's allowing me to keep 90%. Actually, the Lord's allowing you to keep however much you want to keep. Because he's not, we're not under law. Praise God. But the principle is their gain. I don't tithe because the Lord needs it. I don't tithe because the church needs it. I tithe because my faith needs it. And I'm just telling you, it's made a tremendous difference in the way I view finances, in the way I view the Lord. To say that is His, it is not mine. Charity, charitable giving meets the needs of others. Tithing meets the need of faith. Matthew 26.11, Jesus said, and it just came to me this afternoon, He said, You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have Me. Well, what's that verse have to do with tithing? Well, it's interesting, I mention it because of the heart that preceded it. Jesus was just expensively anointed by Mary we learn about this in John chapter 12 verses 1 through 8. Mary comes up, breaks the bottle of pure nard, this incredibly expensive perfume, and pours it on Jesus. And Judas, whose heart is not right, goes, what a waste! Why was, was this not sold, at least, and given to the poor? Charitable giving. Now, taken on its own, Judas' comment is a good one. Yeah, why not? How many kids could that bottle of perfume is sold how many kids could that have fed but jesus answers and says you always have the poor with you but you do not always have me the problem was in the heart of judas it wasn't about charitable giving for judas it was about lining his pockets because we know john tells us he was pilfering out of the money bag he was stealing from the lord And that's where his heart was. Let me be honest with you, even to the point of sounding judgmental, and I'm warning you ahead of time, here I go. Often, not always, but often, the intention of those who argue against tithing in favor of directing or dividing their tithe in other places is in reality justifying little or no giving at all. And I've seen this over and over. How do you know that, Rick? Well, because I know what I thought. (laughs) I know where my heart was. Like Judas, gang, it is the argument of avoidance. Like the priest, there's a certain standard of living we get used to and I'm just not willing to change that. And so Joash says to the priest, I want you to take the money that's supposed to be designated for the temple and I want you to use it on the temple. And they go, okay, and they don't. Because they're not used to giving it up now. They're used to having it for themselves. Gang, if you want to have deeper faith in the Lord, especially where your finances are concerned... Start by giving him the first 10% in faith. Trust me. Trust him. You do that, your faith in him will increase and he will show you how he provides. And it may not be what you expect, and I guarantee it won't work out on paper, but he will show you. Give the first 10% in faith to the Lord. and And then give to charitable organizations above and beyond that. It's a healthy prescription for trusting the Lord faithfully with your finances. Does that feel like Pastor Rick is treading on your wallet a bit? Well, listen. Jehoiada comes up with a great idea. And I'd love to say that we got the idea from him. We didn't. But now at least we can justify it. He built a box. He bored a hole in the top of the box and he set the box by the temple for the offerings of the people bypassing the sticky hands of the priests. It's a great idea. The priest would not know who gave or what was given in the box. The box would just fill up and when the box was filled up they'd take that money, set it aside and all that money then went to the repair of the temple. We have a box back there. And it's so that it doesn't go through the sticky hands of a pastor and it doesn't go through the hands of the shepherds or anybody else. You give when you want to give, how much you want to give and your giving is between you and the Lord. And I've discovered, gang, when you get out of people's way and allow them to give freely at the same time giving the principle of tithing And it makes a big difference. It brings out the joy. Watch this. Verse 8. So the king commanded and they made a chest. And they set it outside by the gate of the house of the Lord. They made a proclamation in Judah and Jerusalem to bring the Lord to the Lord the levy fixed by Moses, the servant of God, on Israel in the wilderness. All the officers and all the people rejoiced and brought in their levies and dropped them into the chest until they had finished. It came about whenever the chest was brought into the king's officer by the Levites, when they saw that there was much money, then the king's scribe... And the chief priest-officer would come, empty the chest, take it, and return it to its place. Thus they did daily, and collected much money. Verse 12, The king and Jehoiada gave it to those who did the work of the service of the house of the Lord. And they hired masons and carpenters to restore the house of the Lord, and also workers in irons and bronze to repair the house of the Lord. So it was for the service of the house, it was for the restoration of the house, and it was for the repair of the house. In verse 12, verse 13, So the workmen labored, and their and the repair work progressed in their hands, and they restored the house of God according to its specifications, and they strengthened it. When they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king in Jehoiada. And it was made into utensils for the house of the Lord, utensils for the service, and the burnt offering, and pans, and utensils of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. So it's a good thing here. The people were told back in verse 11 were told that they rejoiced. They were excited about it. They were happy about it. It was a good thing. Why is that? Because financially the house of the Lord was getting back in order. Now the house of the Lord was being cared for. I love the fact that they don't go after the priest to give that money back. They go, okay, whatever, you keep that, but let's find another way. We're just gonna, if you're not going to give it freely, openly, honestly, then we're going to let the people give to the house of the Lord. Now, verse 15 going on tells us that when Jehoiada reached a ripe old age, he was 130 years old at his death. They buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done well in Israel and to God and his house. A couple of things to note here about Jehoiada. Obviously, a really good thing happened in Israel. The money got put back in the place it was supposed to go. This is a, a good sign in the heart of Yoash that he wanted the temple to be up and functional and running and cleaned out. But Jehoiada, Yeho- a couple things to note about him. Number one, he lived well. Jehoiada lived well. hundred and thirty years old. Now what's cool about that to me, people might say, well, biblical age is always old. No, it wasn't. It was up to the flood. And at the flood, God made a pronouncement. Just before that, Genesis 6-3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. God was... Fed up with man. Give man 800, 900, nearly 1,000 years to live, and he can come up with a lot of ways to sin in that time. So God says, you have 120 years, and I'm setting the bar right there. And what's interesting is with the flood, and I won't get all into this tonight, but if you go back and listen to the Genesis study, Genesis 6, in, in in that area, we talked about the flood, and the fact that at that time, scientists believe, and it's very likely, there was a water canopy that surrounded the earth. They're protected against the harmful rays of the sun. The rays, by the way, that are so bad that even at night they are affecting you because they are shooting through the earth. They're coming through the blockage of the earth right through at you, and that's why we're aging. And that's why we get old, and that's why our skin does what it does. Our hair does what it does. None of you are immune to this. (laughs) But the water canopy at the, at the time of the flood burst. We're told in, in, in the Word that the, the water came up and the water came down. And without that water canopy, suddenly people who were living 950, 960, 980 years no longer were living that way anymore. After that, you pretty much see throughout Scripture, it's around 100, 120 years old. as the older people. Those who even lived that long. Well, Yehoiada, interesting, lives 130 years. He gets 10 years longer. Then the amount of time the Lord said, I will not strive with man. It's going to be 120 years. Why does Jehoiada get to live 130 years? Because he didn't strive with the Lord. He walked with the Lord. The Lord enjoyed this man. There's something in Scripture about this too. And I don't want to put too much on this, but Psalm 91 verse 1, we sing a song, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. The shadow of the Almighty, which means you're near enough to the Lord that His shadow is covering you. You're close to the Lord. But the last verse of that psalm, Psalm 91.16, says this, With a long life, the Lord speaking, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. The Bible tends to equate righteousness with long life. Now wait a minute, Rick, I know some very righteous people who didn't live long. I understand that. But also realize life is not a temporal thing, it's an eternal thing with the Lord. And so even that statement, I will satisfy Him with long life and He will see my salvation, has more to do with a life that just continues on. A life that doesn't stop. A life that whether we die in the flesh or not, we continue on with the Lord. Jesus only lived 33 years on the face of the earth. But listen to what He was promised. Isaiah 53, verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush Him and putting Him to grief. If He would render Himself as a guilt offering, He will see His offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So think about that. You want to live long? You want to live well like Jehoiada? The best prescription I can give you is not to raise your HDL and lower your LDL. The best prescription for a long or at least a well-lived life is righteousness. Walk with the Lord. Yehoiada did. He also was well loved. We notice here that it says they buried him in the city of David among the kings. Among the kings because he had done well in Israel and to God and to his house. Gang Yehoiada was the only priest we know of. May have been others, but he's the only one specifically that's mentioned who's honored with burial among the kings. A truly royal burial. Ironically, Yoash will not. He will not be buried among the kings. Why is that? Well, the scriptures give us Two stories that encompass the reign of Yoash. One good one, this first, under the influence of Jehoiada, the the restructuring, the building, uh, the the restoring, that is, of the temple. And one bad one, where Yoash now comes under the influence of others. So that when Jehoiada died, Yoash's faith fell apart. Verse 17. After the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. Note what's happening here: they're bowing down, and he's listening. What's going on? Well, they're manipulating him. Oh, King Yoash! Oh, we are your servant. Oh, we'll do. It. You are a great king. You're a wonderful king, and they get his ear, and he comes under their influence. In verse 18, unbelievable, they abandoned the house of the Lord, the house the little child Yoash grew up in. The house that Yoash took pains to be sure was restored to service, they abandoned. The God of their fathers, the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers. And they served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem, for this was their guilt. Absolutely unbelievable. This king who was so used to taking advice from Jehoiada now takes advice from men and I think never really learned to listen to the counsel of the Lord it's the one thing, it's the only way that we can explain what goes on here. In fact, it gets worse. Yet, verse 19, he, that is the Lord, sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. And though they testified against them, they would not listen. By the way, verse 19, if you write anything beside it in your Bibles, write grace. They have already denied, forgotten the house of the Lord. They are already worshiping the Asherah poles and the Baals, going after the idols. And what does God do? What I would have done? That's it. Dead meat, toast, you're out of here. What God does is say, i got to send them some prophets to give them a chance to come back. Come on back guys. Like, Don't go there. Come over here. Don't do that. Come with me. Be with me. He sends the prophets. He does this throughout the time of Israel and Judah. Constantly sending the prophets in. And the people just rebelling and not listening, just ignoring. And then things get really ugly. Verse 20. Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. Okay, it's the high priest's son. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you've forsaken the Lord, He's also forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, that is, Joash, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus, Yoash the king did not remember the kindness which his father Jehoiada had shown him. But he murdered his son. And as he died, he said, May the Lord see and avenge, or literally the word there, avenge, is require. May the Lord see and require this of you. Require that you pay for this. How is it possible? The same king who once had a love for the temple now spills blood in the temple. The same king who loved Jehoiada murders his own son, Zechariah. If we want to cut him a break here, we might say he was fed bad information. We might at least say, well, well, maybe, because we know there was a conspiracy here, right? Right? The Bible says they conspired against him. So these counselors that Yoash is listening to must have conspired together and figured out a way to get Yoash on their side to sign a decree to call for the death of this Zechariah. Maybe they lied about Zechariah. Maybe they said he's undermining your kingdom. Maybe they came up with something. But gang, wrong info does not lift responsibility. Yoash still made the call. However you slice it. But whatever the reason this happened... Jesus had something to say about it. Matthew twenty three thirty four. Jesus said, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel. Listen to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Oh, so Jesus is talking about this Zechariah? Well, probably not. (laughs) The story, the person is not the same, but the story is the same. Because this happened more than once. Jesus is probably, when He says this, when He talks about this other Zechariah, He's probably talking about the Zechariah whose book we have in Scripture. Because that book was written after the return of the exiles, sometime after 520 B.C. And Yoash was king over 200 years earlier. So it doesn't really line up that this Zechariah in Second Chronicles is the one Jesus is talking about. Nevertheless, the story is the same. The story of Yoash here as the king is one of influence lost. Not innocence lost, influence lost. I started out by asking you this question. Can you remember the most influential person in your life? Who was it that in your faith today, wherever you stand with the Lord, who was it that really, the Lord really used to instill that faith in you? Someone that you looked up to and said, Wow, I wish I could be like that. I wish I could be like him or like her. And they had such a great impact on you. Who, Who is it today? Maybe there was someone in the past. Maybe now there's someone who's a mentor for you today. Someone who's walking with you and encouraging you and talking with you and discipling you in the Lord today. Who is that person? I need you to think about something, gang. Understand it is valuable. It's necessary. It's even important to learn from and even to lean on a more mature brother or sister in Christ. However, when a person of godly influence becomes your mainstay, you're in trouble. Yehoiada was everything to Yoash, spiritually. And as long as Yeho- Yehoiada was there, Yoash was okay. Take Yehoiada out of the picture, and Yoash is in big trouble. And if all of your faith is running on the faith of somebody else, eventually you're going to run out of gas. Eventually they won't be there. To answer all those questions and to help you and to get you through those rough periods. Which is why Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.18, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Not by me. By them. He says, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Paul later says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2:1, Be strong in the grace that is in the Apostle Paul. No, he didn't. He said, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul calls Timothy his son. Timothy was his protege, Paul his mentor. But the time came when Paul says, I fought the good fight, I've, I've run the race, I'm done. You go on. You don't need me. You need the Lord Jesus. Yoash was strong in Jehoiada, but not in the Lord. So when Jehoiada died, the faith of Yoash dies with him. I want to challenge you to think about who is that mentor or who was that mentor. You don't run on their faith. You run on your faith. Own your faith yourself. Get into the Word yourself. Spend the time in prayer yourself. Don't rest on somebody else's faith because their faith will not carry you through, especially when it gets tough and especially when people are whispering other things to you like these counselors were to Yoash. Verse 23. Now it happened at the turn of the year that the army of the Aramaeans came up against him and they came to Judah and Jerusalem and they destroyed all the officials of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Indeed, the army of the Arameans came with a small number of men, yet the Lord delivered a very great army into their hands because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus, they executed judgment on Yoash. I need to point out here and note this. The Lord judged Yoash, and he judged Yoash by sending Syria, or the Arameans, sending them down to wreak havoc on Judah. That was God's judgment. What happens next was not. When they had departed, verse 25, from him, for they left him very sick, his own servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest, and they murdered him on his bed. That was not from God. The judgment was sending Aram down to fight. This murder was simply that, a murder. He died and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Why? Because he did not die well. He did not live well the last part of his life. He was not a beloved king, as much as Jehoiada was a beloved priest. Now those who conspired against him, verse 26, Zabad, the son of Shimeiath, the Ammonites, and Yehatsabad, both of them were Zabad guys, the son of Shemrith, the Moabites, and as to his sons and the many oracles against him and the rebuilding of the house of God, behold, they're written in the treatise of the book of the kings. And then Amaziah, his son, became king in his place. The Lord's first response to Yoash was grace. He sent the prophets. He gave opportunity. He tried to get them to turn around. But then judgment followed. It always does. Judgment follows grace. Judgment, gang, it does not deny grace. It follows grace. If you are under the grace of God, judgment will not come to you. But if the Lord offers grace and it's rejected, judgment is the only thing left. I was asked actually by Karen a question on Revelation. Great question today or on Sunday at the picnic. Can people come to the Lord and be saved all the way through the tribulation period? And we've talked about and studied the tribulation in the book of Revelation. That seven year period of time where all hell breaks loose on planet earth. Where the church has already been taken out. I believe the scripture is clear on that. And for seven years, it is literally hell on earth. Antichrist rules, bad stuff's going on. But we see throughout that period, we see during that period of time, rather, that people still can be saved. Revelation chapter 7 talks about a great multitude in heaven who came out of the tribulation. People who were martyred for their faith. People who came to the Lord after the fact during that period of time. But Karen's question was, yeah, but can they be saved all the way through the entire seven years? The answer is yes, they can be saved during the entire seven year tribulation, but they won't. Yes, they can, but no, they won't. Revelation 9 verse 20 tells us the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. So as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and brass and of stone and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Revelation 16, verse 9 says, Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give Him glory. Do you get what's happening here? The further along that tribulation period gets, the more people recognize that there is a God in the heavens, that He is exacting justice and judgment, and they shake the fist at Him. They do not repent because they don't want to repent. I'm not going to do what you say. I don't care who you think you are. I don't believe. I'm not going to follow. It's tragic how hard the heart will get. Revelation 16.11 says, They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. So we see opportunity to repent in the first part of the tribulation because God is still a God of grace. But in the last part though the God of grace is hands wide open to receive anybody, in the last part, they did not repent. There's a tragic end to all rebellion, and Yoash dies tragically. Verse 1 of chapter 25, So his son, Amaziah comes along. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Yehoadan of Jerusalem. Verse 2, He did right in the sight of the Lord... Yet not with a whole heart. The character of this king is a little more complex. He does the right thing. Yet, he has the yet clause. A lot of the kings have the yet clause, or the however clause. He did right in the sight of the Lord, however. And the second you see that word, okay, (laughs) they're going to mess up somehow. He did right in the sight of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. Amaziah's name means the Lord is strength. Great name. But Amaziah found his strength in himself. He's a good king. He's a strong king. He's a hard-working king. But he is not a godly king. You could say Amaziah is hard work without a whole heart. Verse 3. Now it came about as soon as the kingdom was firmly in his grasp that he killed his servants who had slain his father, the king. However, he did not put their children to death, But did as it is written in the law of the book of Moses, which the Lord had commanded, saying, Fathers shall not be put to death for sons, nor shall sons be put to death for fathers, but each shall be put to death, watch this, for his own sin. Now I pointed something out a moment ago. Zabad and Yehatzabad, these two guys who murdered Yoash, they took matters into their own hand. This was not godly judgment. This was murder. They were angry, and so they murdered the king. God's judgment was to send the army of the Arameans. It was man's judgment, which was sin, to murder Yoash. And so Amaziah does right. He does right in verse 3 where it says that he killed the servants who had slain his father the king. The word killed there is probably better translated executed. Capital punishment. Death penalty. These two men were murderers. And under Mosaic law, they deserved the death penalty. Exodus twenty-one, twenty-three. If there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And you may read that and say, Wow! God was kind of brutal back then, wasn't He? No, actually God was once again showing His mercy and grace. Because the tendency of man was rather than life for life, it was life, 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 life for life rather than hand for hand, it was hand in hand for hand. You poke out my eye, I'm going to poke out both of yours and everybody in your family too. And so what the Lord was doing was cutting back on revenge and saying, no, we're going to make this equal. If someone takes a life, then their life is required of them, but not the life of their entire family, not their sons, who didn't have anything to do with it. No, the person who sins, the Lord says, shall die. Amaziah does the right thing. He is acting in the Mosaic Law. He is exacting capital punishment which these two evil men who murdered King Joash deserved based on the Law of Moses. He did the right thing. Amaziah is a good, self-confident, strong, politically savvy, shrewd leader of a king. In fact, as leader of the country, he did a lot of right things for Judah. But his heart was not in it. His heart wasn't with the Lord. He was doing the right thing. Do you know anybody like that? You ever been there yourself? You're doing what was prescribed of you. You're expressing churchianity very well. But if you really get down to it, you're just not there. Your heart's not there. Worship comes and goes, and you're like, how many songs is this? Five? Okay, one more to go. The Bible gets open, you think, okay, how many times can I use the restroom before Pastor Rick is done? See, I've been there. I I know what this is like. To do the right thing. and feel good about doing the right thing. But there's no relationship. And that's what God wants, isn't it? Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. God is speaking to the church at Ephesus. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. These are all good things. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. You found them to be false and you have perseverance. You've endured for My name's sake and have not grown weary. You've done all the right things. But he says in verse 4, I have this against you, you've left your first love. Where's our love relationship? I can imagine the Lord saying to Ephesus, saying to the early church, do you remember when we first started going out? And the love and the joy that was there? And now you've settled into doing what is expected. But where's the heart? That is the problem with Amaziah. It's all hard work and it's no heart. And it is easy to do. It's easy to do in the church. Man, get busy for the Lord. It's always someone asking you to sign up for children's ministry. <laughs> <laughs> and so you sign up because it's the right thing to do. And you get involved because, man, Pastor Rick really pushed. He said it like four times in one teaching that you ought to sign up and help out our kids because it's good for them. look, I just said it again. And so I did it. But now I'm just getting burned out on ministry. Why do people burn out on ministry? Because it's hard work and it's not a whole heart. If you do ministry out of a whole heart, guess what? You don't get burned out. You might get a little tired sometimes. You might get a little weary. So take a nap. Take a day off. But you don't burn out. If this is you, if you are that person, man, I've been doing all the right things for so long I don't even know how it feels to love Jesus... Please stop. Just stop what you're doing. And the conversations with people, oftentimes they're new to the bridge. They'll, they'll just be in the door the first time and say, "Boy, I feel like I should sign up to help with something or get involved with something." But I'm just, this is such a nice season, just sitting here. I'm like, "Good, sit. Don't do. That's great. Relax. Get back into that love relationship. The service will come. Yeah, I'll tell you what. You spend time loving Jesus, you can't go very long without serving Him." You'll get drawn into it because you just want to. And that's what we're looking for. That's what Jesus is looking for. The want to, not the have to. It's like Mary. I know the story's familiar. We tell it all the time, but it's so precious. Jesus is out traveling and he runs into this woman named Martha and she says, oh, please come and eat with us, dine at our house. And so he does. Martha has a sister named Mary. They have a brother named Lazarus. And we're told in Luke chapter 10, verse 39, that Mary was just seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. You can just see that, just a little cross leg on the floor, just adoring Jesus. Martha is getting the house in order. She's doing the right thing. And she comes up to her and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. And the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing's necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. You know there was no revival in the days of Amaziah. He was doing all the right things, but there was no revival because his heart wasn't in it. Because he wasn't sitting at the feet of the Lord adoring his King, his Father, his God. Well, he did good political things, did some right things, but he never advanced the nation spiritually. And in verse 5 it goes on and says, Moreover, Amaziah... Assembled Judah and appointed them according to their father's households under the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds throughout Judah and Benjamin. And he took a census of those from 20 years old and upward and found them to be 300,000 choice men able to go to war and handle spear and shield. But he hired also a 100,000 valiant warriors out of Israel. the kingdom of Israel to the north for 100 talents of silver. But a man of God came to him saying, O king, Do not let the army of Israel go with you for the Lord is not with Israel nor with any of the sons of Ephraim. But if you do go, do it. Be strong for the battle. Yet, God will bring you down before the enemy for God has power to help and to bring down. This prophet comes and says, don't put your trust in the number of men you've got on the battlefield. You put your trust in the Lord and He will win the battle which we talked about Sunday. The battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. Remember that? And that's what this prophet's saying. Don't build up your army with outside fighters, especially these guys from Israel, because God is not with them. I, I love how he says this in verse 8. If you do go, go ahead and do it. You know, if you're going to do it, do it, but just know you're going to do it to your own demise. It's good advice. Amaziah said to the man of God, Well, but what shall we do for the hundred talents which I've given to the troops of Israel? And the man of God answered, The Lord has much more to give you than this. In other words, don't worry about it, man. We a 100,000 talents to hire these mercenaries and you just want me to let it go? Yeah. Yeah, because God's got it covered. Trust Him. Don't trust in yourself. So Amaziah, he did the right thing. Good Amaziah. He dismissed them, the troops which came to him from Ephraim to go home. And so their anger burned against Judah and they returned home in fierce anger. Why, they got paid. Yeah, they didn't get to fight. These guys wanted to fight. And he sends them away and now they're hopping mad and it will not bode well. As we've seen many times before, doing the right thing does not always guarantee or bring about the right results. It doesn't always mean good will follow. If you stand for the Lord, if you determine to follow the Lord, it doesn't mean the next day your life is just going to be smooth sailing. In fact, you're probably going to be in the storms and you're going to hit some shipwrecks, as the Apostle Paul did. In fact, you determine to follow the Lord, it could get far worse for you than it is right now. Because now you're going to have an enemy who's gunning for you. But Amaziah, he, de- he determines to do the right thing. He sends these guys home, trusting in the word of the Lord, but the results will not be good for Judah. We'll see in just a moment. But you got to set that story aside. We go on to another one, verse 11. Now Amaziah strengthened himself and led his people forth and went down to the Valley of Salt. This is now with just his 300,000, just the fighters from Judah. And he struck down 10,000 of the sons of Seir. The sons of Judah also captured 10,000 alive and brought them to the top of the cliff and threw them down from the top of the cliff (laughs) so that they were all dashed to pieces. This is warfare, man. It's just warfare. But I believe at this point the Lord is trying to get the attention of Amaziah's heart. He's saying, look, don't rely on these other guys. You rely just on the Lord. Go ahead and go into the battle. The Lord will give you victory. So he gets victory just like the prophet said. And the hope there would simply be that Amaziah would go, huh, trust in the Lord, win the battle. Okay, Lord, I want to give you more of my heart. But he doesn't. He doesn't do it. He misses the message of the Lord. Verse 13. Now we're back to the other story. But the troops whom Amaziah sent back, those 100,000 mercenaries from going with him to battle, raided the cities of Judah, from Samaria to beth and struck down 3,000 of them and plundered much spoil. So now Amaziah is going, okay, we got victory on the battlefield, but I did the right thing, and those guys went, and they trashed Judah on their way home, and they killed 3,000 of my innocent people, so-called. Not fair, not right. Trusting in the word of the Lord apparently doesn't guarantee Relief or protection from persecution, and that's absolutely true. It doesn't. Second Timothy three twelve. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Bank on it. It's going to happen. It's going to be hard. In fact, it's often early in faith that Satan tries to derail you with hardship. It's often when someone is young and they're believing, they're just starting to believe that that Jesus is real and God does love them, that Satan undermines and tries to hit them with something hard. They go, well, if if God loves me, why does this happen? If God loves me, well then... And that's where Amaziah is. Remember, he's a 50-50 guy. He returns from victory, and yet, when he sees this, he faces this other problem. I think it really affects him. Verse 14, after Amaziah came from slaughtering the Edomites he brought the gods of the sons of Seir and set them up as his gods, bowed down before them and burned incense to them. The anger... This is really ironic. Well, I'm not going to jump ahead. Watch verse 15. The anger of the Lord burned against Amaziah and he sent him a prophet. He said to him, watch this, Why have you sought the gods of the people who have not delivered their own people from your hand? Do you realize how stupid this is? God delivers you and you take their gods who are incapable of doing the same for them and begin to worship them. Huh? You've got to be kidding me, Amaziah. I mean, it's just an absolutely stupid thing to do. Faith set aside, it's just dumb. It just doesn't make sense. Why would you worship something you know is incapable of taking care of you? You know is incapable of being where you are. Well... Why don't we ask ourselves that question? Why do we pursue courses of action we know have failed before rather than going to the Lord? Why do we keep doing the same dumb thing? Well, I read this help book and it didn't really work, but I'm sure this one's going to do it for me. Have you been to the Lord yet? There's a restaurant down in Oak Harbor. I won't say which one it is, but I guarantee it's going to fail. Well, why is that, Rick? Because every restaurant that's been in that building has failed since I've lived here. (laughs) You know, it's basic market research. Let's see. uh, You're selling me this building. Why are you selling it? Well, we failed inside of a year. Oh, bummer for you. I guess it could have been bad management. How about the restaurant before you? Well, they failed inside of a year. Really? And the one before them? Two years. And the one before them? Six months. And the one before them? Three months. Okay. So obviously this is not a good location for a restaurant. But in our life, we do this. We keep repeating the same dumb things over and over. Why don't we learn? Why don't we just take it to the Lord instead of to our idols? Psalm 115 verse 4 says, "...their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands." They have mouths, but cannot speak. They have eyes, but cannot see. Ears, but cannot hear. Noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Listen, those who make them will become like them. Because we become like what we worship. Les is praying for worship. Talking about worship tonight. Why is worship so important? Not only does it exalt the Father, but it changes me. It makes me more like Him. Because the one we worship, we become like. God gave Amaziah the chance to repent. Gives him the opportunity, and he doesn't, because his heart was already prepared for idolatry all along. What are you talking about? Amaziah is expressing what I would call latent idolatry. It just takes the destruction of Mount Seir and getting his hands on these gods for it to spring up. Watch this, verse... Where are we here? 16. Verse 16, right. Back in verse 2, that's what I wanted to point out again. He did right in the sight of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. Because his heart was not holy for the Lord's, he was ready when the idols came in. Now verse 16. As he was talking with him, the king said to him, Have we appointed you a royal royal counselor? Or the prophet now is, is talking with Amaziah. Have we appointed you a royal counselor? Amaziah says, Stop! Why should you be struck down? And the prophet stopped and said, <laughs> which I really like, the, the, look what's happening. The king gets mad at him because the prophet brings a judgment. And he says, You better shut up. And the prophet goes... Just one more thing, okay? He said, I know that God has planned to destroy you because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. That's all I'm going to say. You tell me to stop, okay, but I'm just telling you, I know what I know what I know here. Okay, Amaziah's heart is not wholly given to the Lord, so it remains open to other influences. Kind of like his father, Yoash. Now he's going to be under the influence, the influence of idolatry. And understand this, idolatry is no less than replacement spirituality. We've talked about replacement theology. That is saying the church is Israel, and that's completely bogus. Well, guess what? Idolatry is replacement spirituality. Anything in our lives that replaces wholehearted faith in Jesus Christ is idolatry amassing all kinds of money in my bank account so I know I'm protected if the economy goes worse (laughs) idolatry it's not trusting the Lord I'm not saying you can't save but are you saving because that's where the Lord has led you are you saving in the Lord or is it because you're trying to make sure that you're safe it's idolatry and it's sad In the time between verses 16 and 17, nothing changes Amaziah's heart. He does, however, learn what the Israelite mercenaries have done by now. Verse 17, Amaziah, king of Judah, took counsel and he sent to Yoash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Yehu, the king of Israel. So this is a different Yoash. This is not Yoash of Judah. This is Yoash who's king in Israel now. And he says, come, let's face each other. Just so you understand what he's talking about, let's go to war. I want to fight you. Why would he say that? Because your guys messed up my country when I sent them back home. Yoash, the king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, the king of Judah, saying, The thorn bush, which was in Lebanon, sent to the cedar, which was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son in marriage. But there passed by a wild beast that was in Lebanon and trampled the thorn bush. Huh? This king sending a parable back down there, and he's saying... You know what, Amaziah? You're a little thorn bush. Don't mess with me or you're going to get trampled by the beast. Verse 19, You said, Behold, you've defeated Edom and your heart has become proud and boasting. Now stay at home. Why should you provoke trouble so that you, even you, would fall and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not listen for it was from God that he might deliver them into the hand of Yoash because they had sought the gods of Edom. This was judgment from the Lord because Amaziah still wasn't getting it. He was still not turning his heart to the Lord, but he was opening his heart continually to idolatry. So the Lord comes again with another judgment. I'm going to get this guy's attention one way or the other. I tried the prophets and he wouldn't listen. I tried one course of judgment, he would not listen. We're going for course of judgment number two here. So Yoash king of Israel went up And he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced each other at Beth Shemesh, which belonged to Judah, and Judah was defeated by Israel, and they fled each to his tent. And then Yoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Yoash, the son of Jehoahaz, at Beth Shemesh, and brought him to Jerusalem, and tore down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate 400 cubits. So now the king is captured, and they lose 600 feet of wall around Jerusalem. And to make matters worse, he took all the gold and silver and all the utensils which were found in the house of God which with Obed-Edom, and the treasures of the king's house, and hostages also, and they returned to Samaria. Verse 25, And Amaziah, the son of Yoash, king of Judah, lived fifteen years after the death of Yoash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, from first to last, behold, are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel? From that time, that from the time that Amaziah turned away from following the Lord, they conspired against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Laish. Now, after he was captured, apparently they had let him go at some point. He's back down in Jerusalem. He finds out there's a conspiracy. He runs away, but they sent after him to Laish, and they killed him there. And they brought him on horses. I don't know why they had to bring more than one horse, unless it was a really brutal killing, but they brought him on horses and buried him with his fathers in the city of Judah. It's a sad story. A couple of sad stories tonight, really. Amaziah was a good king. He was a good man, but his heart was lacking. So he took on the gods of the enemy, and it destroyed him. I want to share one last thing with you tonight, and we'll be done. I read a disturbing article about just this sort of thing this week, that is, trusting in the gods who cannot save. Believing in the gods who cannot help. I need to preface it with an encouraging idea, however. Some of you may know this, but August 22nd through September 20th marks the annual Muslim observance of Ramadan. This is their high holy month of the year, 30 days of fasting and trying to get right with, with Allah. And there's a network of Christians around the world who have determined to pray during this time, not to Allah, but to Jesus Christ for the salvation of Muslims. And it's a great idea. I, I wholeheartedly support it. It's called the 30 Days Prayer Network. You might want to check it out. Back lesson I wanted to mention it to you. www.30-days.net www.30-days.net and it's a prayer network of Christians around the world who are praying for the salvation of Muslims. Amen to that. And by the way, in Iran alone, the Christian population is burgeoning. Christianity in the Muslim-held nations is moving at a very, a frighteningly rapid pace to their leaders. <laughs> they don't like seeing what's going on. So good things are happening. We need to pray for Muslims to come to Jesus. But let me be clear about two things. I do not see Muslims as the enemy. Satan is the enemy. However, we do not worship the same God by a different name. Now if you've been at the bridge any amount of time, you've heard me talk about this before, but I want to be clear tonight. Allah and Yahweh are not the same God. By their own definition. By Allah's own definition. He is not the same as Yahweh of the Bible. Completely different God. Allah is, in fact, no different than the Baals or the Ashtaroth of the Old Testament. Well, Rick, that's a little harsh and offensive. I'm just telling you the truth. It was harsh and offensive in Israel when the prophets came and they said, don't worship the Baals, they cannot help you. Same thing. That being said, the idea of taking the gospel to the Muslim world and encouraging Christians to pray over these 30 days for the salvation of Muslims in the name of Jesus Christ is a worthy and good thing, and I encourage you to do it. However, it was Samuel Johnson, that famous lexicographer and essayist in the 18th century, who gave us this quote, Hell is paved with good intentions. And in this case, there's a group of evangelical Christians who are making paving stones out of the idea of praying during Ramadan. Not for the salvation of Muslims, but praying with who they call their Muslim brothers and sisters. Let me just read this to you. A smaller left-wing Christian sect, often referred to as the emerging church, is now also taking a very different approach. This year, a group of emergent Christians led by one of the United States' most influential pastors, Brian McLaren, has announced it will actually be observing the Muslim Holy Month along with a Muslim partner. Ramadan is the month that Muslims thank Allah, their God, for revealing the Quran to Muhammad, their prophet. On McLaren's personal blog, he recently announced his intentions. We, as Christians, humbly seek to join Muslims in this observance of Ramadan as a God-honoring expression of peace, fellowship, and neighborliness. That sounds so nice. That sounds so unifying. But does such an interreligious observance go beyond mere neighborliness and cross the lines into uh, religious compromise and syncretism? And I would say, yes, it does. McLaren himself wrote. And, and just so you understand, he's not one of these who with the 30-day prayer network is saying, hey, let's, let's join and let's pray for Muslims to find Jesus. Let's pray for their salvation. That's not his purpose. His own words on his uh, blog, he wrote, our main purpose for participating will be our own spiritual growth, health, learning, and maturity. That's why we want to do this. We want to pray with our Muslim brothers and sisters during Ramadan. We also hope that our experience will inspire others to pray and work for peace and the common good together with the people of other faith traditions. As Christians, we want to come close to our Muslim neighbors and to share this important part of life with them. Now this, this just burned me up, so back up in the front row. It's made me really mad. <laughs> Just as Jesus, a devout Jew, overcame religious prejudice and learned from a Syrophoenician woman and was inspired by her faith 2,000 years ago. What? Jesus overcame personal prejudice? I don't think so. He says, we seek to learn from our Muslim sisters and brothers today. Gang, the only way it would be possible for Jesus to overcome a personal prejudice is if He were merely human Merely a prophet, as Islam teaches he was, just a human. But if he is Emmanuel God with us, as the Word of God tells us he is, then he does not have to overcome personal prejudice. Why well, not just burn me right up? There is a word for this gang. Are we now to appropriate Muslim theology and observances to enhance our own? If we are to do that, the word is idolatry. That's idolatry. It's having up my heart. I have a whole heart for Jesus or I have a heart that's three-fourths for Jesus and one-fourth for Allah. It's idolatry. And there's no other way to slice it if you're just looking at Scripture and being biblical. What about grace? I believe in grace. And I believe every Muslim who cries out the name of Jesus Christ for salvation can be saved out of the religion of Islam, which is not a religion of grace, but works and condemnation and damning to hell. That's what it is. I know I'm sounding like a... Whatever. How do Christian people get so far off from the truth? And we have seen it in two stories tonight. Half-heartedness. Half-heartedness leaves the heart open to other influences. We want to pray for whole-hearted faith. I believe in Jesus with every inch of my heart. With every ounce of my being, He is my Lord, He is my Savior, and my life belongs to Him and Him alone and no other. John said in 1 John 5.20, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is true God and eternal life. And then John finishes his message saying, little children, guard yourselves from idols. How do we guard ourselves from idols? Easy. Give Christ your whole heart. Give Him your whole heart. Place all of your faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then as Paul says, we will be destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we will take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. And then idolatry will not be an issue because we will be a wholehearted people. May we be under the influence of Jesus, Amen. and may we be wholehearted for Him. And Lord, that is our prayer tonight. Father, I pray. I, oh, I just I ache for this message to get out. I ache, Father, for for Christians in general, for evangelical believers in Jesus who are who are. They're watering down their faith. And in the name of some kind of mass unity, compromising right and left. Father, I pray that people will see truth, not a gentle compromise. I pray, Father, for Muslims in this world to come to faith in Jesus Christ because He is true God and eternal life. Because they recognize that He is God in the flesh. They understand this. They come to that faith. Not because we start to carve out bits and pieces of our faith to be more like them. I pray in this fellowship that we will become more and more wholehearted, not judgmental, Father, and not just about doing the right things, but God, we will be so relational and in love with You, Jesus. That along with the truth shining out from this place, there will be such a love that people cannot help but see Jesus here. I ask that you start that work in our hearts right here tonight. And we thank you for your word. May we not be like Yoash under the influence of man, but only under the influence of Christ. And may we not be like Amaziah, Lord, half-hearted, But may we be wholehearted for Jesus. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray tonight. Amen.